BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Welcome to the Rhino Podcast, brought to you by Rhino Records. Interviews with your favorite artists and bands about the songs and albums you love. Here's your host, Rich Mahan. On this episode of the Rhino Podcast, our guest is Martha Rafferty, here to talk about her father Jerry Rafferty's new album, Rest in Blue. Winding your way down a Baker Street, lighting your head and dead on your feet, well, another crazy day. Drink the night away and forget about everything. This city desert makes you feel so cold, it's got so many people, but it's got no soul. Welcome back to the Rhino Podcast, ladies and gentlemen. I'm Rich Meehan here with John Hughes. John, how's it going? Hi, it's going well, Richard. How are you? <laughs> so formal, so formal, Richard. Well, you know, I am dressed in my finest new tuxedo here. So <laughs> I always wear, yeah, I wear my powder blue prom tuxedo from 1986 with the ruffles and everything. Whenever I record, it makes me feel grand. Oh, yeah. Full makeup the whole nine. <laughs> sort of like the first artist we're talking about today, uh, Madonna, has a new live album. Madam X, Music from the Theater Experience, is out now. It is a 20-song digital soundtrack that features full audio from her concert film and more of a concept film. It's already streaming in the U.S., Latin America, Nordics, Canada, Australia, all on Paramount+. Plus. Fans outside of these markets can watch the documentary on MTV. Hold on, wait a minute. You mean they're actually playing music on MTV? <laughs> no comment. Uh, to coincide with the film's debut, there is a new digital soundtrack which showcases 20 powerful live performances that touch on different eras of Madonna's celebrated career, including her ninth number one album, Madam X. Madam X, Music from the Theater Experience, is out now on digital download and streaming platforms. She is just an unstoppable force of nature. You know, I, I, I grew up with Madonna, so I always give her her props. She's something else, and she's just really blazed a path. You know, you hear people say, oh, she's one of the most influential female artists of all time. No, no, one of the most influential artists of all time, period. I mean, Thank let's you. give her, her her due. Right alongside Chrissy Hind and the Pretenders with their brand new deluxe editions of Pretenders and Pretenders 2. How about that for a segue, buddy? You like that? Mm-hmm. Okay, curated by Chrissy Hine, both Pretenders and Pretenders 2 are each presented in 12 by 12 CD deluxe sets, three CDs in each one, featuring a high-quality book with brand-new liner notes by acclaimed journalist Will Hodgkinson. They also include a myriad of rare and unseen photos of the band. Pretenders Deluxe Edition contains the original album remastered by Chris Thomas, alongside demos, rarities, and a lot of live performances, including the BBC sessions on The Kid Jensen Show, performances at the Paris Theatre in London, and the Paradise Theatre in Boston. 
Meanwhile, Pretenders 2 Deluxe Edition also features a remastered version of the album by that reliable Chris Thomas. Demos, alternates, along with two live performances, one from Central Park in New York City in 1980, and an electric show from the Santa Monica Civic Auditorium in 1981. These are out November 5th, and if you go to rhino.com, you can get a version that includes an exclusive limited edition numbered print. That's only at rhino.com. Yeah, love, love, love that original lineup of the Pretenders. It was just, you couldn't stop them. They were a tank rolling down I the mean, street. You put the needle down on Precious, and you knew this was going to change things. I mean, it was just amazing. Oh, yeah. Tattooed Love Boys, Mystery oh. Achievement. That whole album just crushes. And even even the B-sides, which are on this Cuban slide. I, oh, I Cuban slide. Great song. Yeah. Yeah, so uh, just amazing. Love, love, love the Pretenders. I'm really looking forward to both of these because uh, there's stuff on here that I haven't heard, so it's going to be a great listen. Thank you so much, John. Thanks, Richard. I will see you next time. <laughs> Ciao. Well, our guest today is Martha Rafferty, daughter of Scottish-born singer-songwriter Jerry Rafferty, well-known for his hits such as Stuck in the Middle with You when he was in Steeler's Wheel, and two massive songs from the 70s, Right Down the Line and Baker Street. Jerry passed away about 10 years ago, and at that time he was working on a new album. His daughter Martha has gone through Jerry's archives and studio recordings and has finished her father's last album, Rest in Blue. Martha Rafferty, thank you so much for joining us on the Rhino Podcast. It's a pleasure. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Well, your dad has a new record of material out. The new album is called Rest in Blue. Why don't you give us a little background on the story about this record? Yeah, well, Rest in Blue is basically the album that he was working on before he died. So it would have been his last studio album had he managed to release it before that. So what I did really was pick up where he'd left off. A lot of the songs were in, well, they were all in demo form. Some more sort of worked on in others. And it's a collection of melodies that he'd had in embryo form for many, many years, actually. It's basically his last sort of collection of more or less original work. Yeah. Did he have notes that kind of led you to understand what songs he wanted included? Were you aware that he was making this album before he passed? Sure. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, he always had a home studio, so I was always aware of what he had been working on. And yeah, we were very close. So I always knew, you know, where he was at with his career and his music making. I mean, he never stopped writing music. So there was always, the next album was always the next thing. So you know, this is, this is that, that record really. Let's go back a little bit and talk about your dad, your dad's history musically and and come back to the record and go deeper into the record. Then uh, mm. your family and your dad was from Scotland, where your dad was born, correct? Yes, absolutely. He was of Irish Catholic origins, and his mother was Scottish, his father was Irish, and he grew up in Paisley on the west coast of Scotland near Glasgow. 
if I'm not mistaken, some of that traditional folk music from the area was really an early influence on him musically, wasn't it? Yeah, very much so. His mother was a fantastic singer and, and the Rafferty's were very much brought up in that tradition of Irish, the Irish tradition of getting together and singing in harmony and song. That was very much part of our upbringing. So yeah, we all used to sing together and it was kind of a one of those things you had to do on occasions, every, every sort of get together, um, you'd have to sing and you'd have to know how to sing in harmony, actually. So right. that's very much part of um, his upbringing and, and my upbringing. Because you're a singer yourself. You're a vocalist. I mean, I love singing. I've, I've got no interest in doing it professionally, but yeah, um, we, all, we all enjoy singing. Yeah. Yeah, right, right. Your dad grew up musically in a time that was very conducive to putting his folk music background into a professional practice because you had the big folk music boom of the 60s. And that was actually part of his first group that really gained some notoriety, the Humble Bums. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I would never say that he was a folk artist um, exclusively, but the the folk music circuit in Scotland was where a lot of um, young bands, you know, sort of learned their trades, so to speak. And there was a, you know, a huge revival in traditional music then in the British Isles. So yeah, he was definitely part of that with Billy Conley and Barbara Dixon and his close friend, Rav Noakes. And, but it was very organic. You know, they would just sit around on pub floors and sort of jam. And it would be a mixture of folk music and, you know, Beatles songs and Everly Brothers tracks. And, you know, there was a lot of Americana that kind of had yeah. um, fed into that as well. So it wasn't exclusively folk music for them, but there was a very sort of purist sort of folk scene as well, which he was less a part of, I would say. Yeah. yeah Especially, right, right. you know, when sort of rock and roll took off. Yeah. Right. I mean, even Dylan went electric, so, you know. <laughs> yeah, even, even Dylan. And he hasn't stopped, hasn't he? <laughs> so we got to talk about Billy Connolly for a minute because everybody knows him as the fantastically humorous comedian, but... Uh, he started out as a musician playing with your dad. Are there any funny stories that your dad told you about those days with Billy? Because they must have gotten into some real shenanigans. Oh, yes. There's many, many a story. Not sure how many I could repeat on air. But yeah, he's uh, full, full of anecdotes about that time. And, and Billy is a fantastic banjo player, actually. And I think he does himself a great misjustice when he plays down his musical talents because um you know, Billy has got a really strong musical vein in his blood. He, oh, my dad always said it was some of the happiest times of his life touring was with Billy. They had great, great fun. Do you sing a song for us? Play your guitar. There isn't one of us care who you are. But if the sound is dad was very outgoing incredibly funny incredibly witty and they were just like two sides of the same coin i wow. think and remained very close up until he died yeah yeah i saw an interview with billy on conan where he said that he was actually texting with your dad trying to make him laugh in the final days of his life which was that was lovely actually yeah, they yeah. really reconnected right at the end there yeah no one could make him laugh the way that Billy did. Um, <laughs> That's sweet. As only he can. Yeah. yeah right. Right. Uh, why did Jerry leave the Humble Bums? 
I think he just outgrew the humble bums. He outgrew sort of, um, you know, that particular outfit. And Billy went on to, you know, his his talents were obviously in entertaining and being on stage, whereas my dad's became more and more obviously a songwriter. So okay. um, it was just a case of trying to, you know, pursue their own talents, I think, more more directly. After the Humble Bums, he formed Steeler Sweel with Joe Egan. Did he do that before his first solo record? Yeah. So the first solo record came out after Steeler Sweel in order to fulfill his contractual agreements, actually. Steeler's Wheel with Joe Egan, obviously, they have this big hit that probably changed their lives and catapulted them into the spotlight, and that's stuck in the middle with you. Was your dad surprised when that became a hit? Yeah, I think he was very surprised that it kind of grew the arms and legs that it did that track because it was never a serious... He was a serious songwriter, and for him, Stuck in the Middle was a kind of throwaway... That, you know, an album filler. Um, it it wasn't a serious track. I mean, he even did it in a kind of slightly Dylan-esque voice, which you know. Um, so it was it was meant to be slightly a bit of a parody, not on Dylan, but just of you know the whole record was kind of a joke actually. So he was really surprised, <laughs> but obviously you know it just hit a nerve. Yeah, it's it's just gone on to become this um, you know one of these kind of iconic sort of cult classic tracks, hasn't it? But yeah, it was written very quickly. I think in about you know 10, 15 minutes in the studio, they sort of um, pulled it together. very kind of nasal sort of Dylan-esque voice which yeah. um I mean he was the biggest Dylan fan of them all so um it was never meant to be you know a parody or a joke or anything like that but yeah there's definitely a Dylan influence I would say in the track for sure yeah yeah on that first Steelers wheel record there's some other heavy hitters that are on the background working on that including Beatles engineer Jeff Emmerich and it was produced by Jerry Lieber and Mike Stoller. Lieber and Stoller, the famous rock and roll songwriters. How did he hook up with those people? Well, I think they approached Steelers Wheel about producing producing their record. Um, so they flew out to the States and they produced the Steelers Wheel, Steelers Wheel album. So Lieber and Stoller, you know, they were very much old school establishment. And I think there was a little bit of a generation gap there in terms of the communication because, you know, they all wanted to stay in the studio and drink and stay late. But Libra and Stella were kind of nine to five, you know. Yeah, right. Um, so, you know, they were professional, let's say. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, nonetheless, it was obviously, you know, very... Uh, very exciting for them to have worked with Lieber and Stiller considering all the work that they'd done, you know, in the past. Sure. Um, and the record turned out, you know, brilliant. It's true. It's kind of hard to imagine how that all came together looking back, but yeah, it did. I know. And of course the record sounds fantastic. Jeff Emmerich, what a fantastic engineer. Yeah, so, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Now Steelers Wheel disbanded in 75. What was your dad's thinking then? Was he just really itching to work on his own stuff? to realize a vision of his own music as he saw it? I think so. I mean, he, he obviously had a lot more and a lot more to give than he was able to give in a, in a 
group environment and he didn't really like the dynamic and the politics of groups um so after Steelers Wheel disbanded he yeah he did go in solo and he would um just recruit the very best session musicians for for his records and, and that gave him a lot more creative freedom right and that was in 75 and then his next solo album City to City came out in 78 now the recording of City to City what was the genesis of that album it was a three-year project in the making yeah so um no he definitely didn't go into the studio and just knock that one out that was those were very carefully crafted songs that he you know he spent a lot of time on first at his home studio he would you know work on the demos and Mm -hmm. and then later in the studio he would take quite a long a lot of time to you know really build up the sound around those tracks and then production wise of course because you know he produced that record as well a lot of people don't realize how much he was influenced by the music it's a frank sinatra era production interesting yeah so that's where I think he got his real sort of, you know, sort of eye for detail and the, sort of, the kind of sound that he wanted. Yeah. Um, and also um, vocally to, you know, he took the art of singing very seriously in the same way that, you know, those crooners of that era did. So I think he was able to bring out all these influences, um, you know, in that album. There's a couple of absolutely iconic songs on this record and of course we'd be remiss if we didn't talk about your dad's biggest hit which is baker street Mm. there's i think when people think of baker street they think of that iconic saxophone break in there and i think people would really be interested in hearing which we'll play a little clip of your dad's demo for that song where he plays that part on guitar And I think there was a misconception that the saxophonist somehow wrote that part. Well, that was unfortunately something that the saxophonist (laughs) uh, was keen to make people think. But no, that 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 line, that saxophone line, was um, originally uh, he. I've got a demo of him actually singing that line before it got put down as a guitar in in one of the demos. And then when they were in the studio, they knew that the guitar wasn't quite right because Baker Street had a sort of, um, you know, this dark side of the city and that kind of melancholy yeah. jazz sort of feel. Right. Um, they perhaps the saxophone would work. So they literally looked up saxophonists and um, session musicians when they were in the studio. I think Pete Zorn was the first one that they tried, but he wasn't available. And then the next one that they found was Raphael Ravenscroft. And they thought with a name like that, you know, we have to get him in. (laughs) We have to get him in the studio. So, um, yeah. And then um, he was, he was played the line, but, you know, also he did imbue it with his own perspective and his own interpretation, which is brilliant. You know, he was a great saxophonist and they were great friends actually. So, um, yeah, it was just a, a lucky day, I guess, for, for them both, actually, that that happened. Mm-hmm. 
And then, of course, another great song off of this album is Right Down the Line, which is one of my favorites. There's just something about the feel of this one. Yeah, that is a beautiful song. It's 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 just one of the great love songs, isn't it? And yeah. all the more so, I think, because it's not kind of sentimental. You know, it's a very honest sort of unpretentious declaration of love, isn't it? Yeah. Um, that m- most people can relate to, I think. Put something better inside of me. Did your dad enjoy playing live and touring? Yeah, he did. Um, actually, he yeah, he did. It's a bit of a misconception that he didn't like touring. He he enjoyed touring very much. I mean, he liked performing and he liked connecting with an audience. I don't think he right. liked the trappings of touring as much, you know, the hotel rooms and, and being away from home. But connecting with a live audience was something that he really enjoyed, yeah. I think that's so important for a lot of musicians to kind of get that out and kind of fills up your emotional gas tank, so to speak, you know, getting that feedback from a live audience. Very much so, yeah. But your dad, obviously, you said he had a home recording studio. Where were all of the recordings that became the new album, Rest in Blue? Had your dad gone digital yet, or was he still working with reel-to-reel tape? And what was the process like going through these recordings and listening to them again? Well, yeah, he he was all digital by that point. He had a recording studio he could actually take with him around the world. So he would sort of go off to the Caribbean and get all the gear sent out there. And so it was all on Pro Tools. And I had an engineer that he worked with. He and I worked together. And actually, it was over lockdown that I really had the time and attention to give to it. Mm-hmm. But it, um, you know, it's ten years since he died, so it's a sort of ten year anniversary of his death. And and it just felt like the time, the right time to be able to really pick it up. I did try on um, sort of different occasions to, you know, sort of pick up the thread of the album. And it was actually just too difficult. It was emotionally, it was too hard. Right. So, it, yeah, it took me 10 years to do it. But it just, you know, like everything, the time, the time was right. So. Well, there must have been so much more material than the songs that you actually landed on that are included on the record. How did you choose what would be included and what wouldn't make the record? So basically, he had about 14, 13 or 14 new original songs. Um, And because lyrics were always the thing that he left to the very last um, moment, that was the thing that he found hardest. Um, We had a lot of tracks that he just, you know, he was kind of ad-libbing and they just weren't, the lyrics weren't, they didn't make enough sense to be able to actually, you know, include them. So we were left with nine nine original tracks which we've we've used but then in going through the demos i found all these you know these wonderful covers with these incredible vocals that i just thought well there we go we'll just include them as well and uh, which was something that he would have done anyway you know because he did include covers of some of his favorite songs on on earlier albums so you know he would have been very okay with that too yeah so yeah that was kind of the process of of deciding which ones to use i mean the, the songs that we weren't able to use on this album you know they'll definitely be great covers for other people to sing or even duets so they will make an airing in some form or another i'm, I'm sure in the future yeah i imagine you had to do some 
finishing work on these songs. Why don't you give me an example of one that you had to really do quite a bit of work to get around? Like, what did you have to add and and edit, so to speak? Yeah. You know, he'd been working on most of these songs as a new album from around 2006. You know, just, I think, a reflection of where he was psychologically. They had become quite overworked. He just kept adding on more layers and more synths, you know, this, that. And when I started to listen to them again, I, I could remember these songs when he had just written them, you know. Yeah. Um, that would be him, just him at the piano or the guitar. And, you know, I, I kind of thought long and hard about what approach to take to this record. And, I mean, for me, I knew there was no point really in trying to second guess what he would have done because only he can do that. So I had to come at it from the perspective of, you know, what did I want to bring out in him? I mean, for me, it was the beauty of his voice um, without little, you know, as little accompaniment as possible. So that's kind of what we did. We just took everything off and just listened to the vocal by itself. And then from there, you know, just introduced real instruments, you know, so, um, a lot of musicians that he'd worked with in the past, we were able to get them to add guitar and bass and drums. Um, for me, it was all about, you know, putting the vocal centre and up front um, yeah. as much as possible. The album is is kind of a reflection of, you know, how I remember him and how I hear him. You know, I think it does his vocal abilities justice. You know, he's just got such a beautiful voice that that's what I wanted to really shine. Right. When I think of your dad, that's what I think of is his voice and, and the way that it sounds when he sings. But what instruments was he proficient at? A musician of his caliber, he probably played a few different things. Oh, I mean, he was an incredibly well-accomplished guitar player, actually. And, you know, he's he's wonderful pianist as well. I mean, he had no formal musical training. So everything he learned, he learned from ear. But, you know, he could sort of find his way across the piano better than anyone I've ever met actually because hmm. it was all intuitive you know? right. he just understood you know the way one chord leads into another he had perfect pitch so wow. I mean he, he had a he just had a very good ear for music so um yeah great guitar player great um pianist as well actually yeah well the album opens with still in denial and lyrically it sounds like he's singing to himself there almost. Is that a fair assessment? Um well it's very autobiographical for sure. Yeah. I mean he wasn't under any illusions about the kind of struggles he was facing and had faced. He spoke from the heart about what was really happening. Um so there was no pretense or sort of skimming over, you know, the dark, the dark parts and the dark sides and that's what he wanted to express so yeah that that song was very much about what he was experiencing traditional folk songs on here and this dirty old town and wild mountain time you know going back to what you talked about singing with family and friends or do they go that far back in his life yeah most definitely i mean wild mountain time was definitely one of the 
the canon uh, of songs that we would sing, you know, at um, family get-togethers. Well, I went times at traditional Scottish songs, so it was very much one that we were aware of. And yeah, it was kind of the litmus test of, you know, of, of a good singer was how they were able to interpret that that song. And I, I think, um, but I think he does it just, you know, he really does it justice. I, I actually can't think of another version I mean, I'm probably biased, of course, but another yeah, version that yeah. I like more. Yeah. Uh, I just think he sings it so beautifully. And we'll all go together to And I think it's neat that, you know, bookend in his career, you've got these versions of these traditional folk songs, but they're sung, filtered through the complete sum of his musical knowledge and everything that he learned throughout his life. So it's a, it's a great culmination of everything that he had learned and then everything from his roots put into practice and set to tape. It's great. Yeah, and I mean, he, he, he sings from the heart as well. You know, you hear a mature, a mature man singing those songs. He can bring, like you said, you know, years of experience, of just life experience to those, to those melodies. And that's what, that's what gives it the depth. Yeah. You know, that's what touches people. So I think that was what he was able to do vocally. He was able to um, connect to the heart and, and transmit that and... Um, and that's what people connect to, you know, when they hear his voice, I think. Yeah. Well, the single off that record was Slow Down. Why don't you tell us about that song? And why'd you guys pick that one as the lead track? It had a kind of, it was just very optimistic sounding record. And it kind of connected with this theme of taking a step back from, you know, this sort of mainstream focus on making money in the city and, that kind of drive um, and just taking a step back from everything and slowing it all down and, and reflecting on, on, on your life and what you're doing. And it just seemed to kind of fit as well with how people were feeling during the pandemic that it, it was such a massive sort of stop in everybody's lives. A lot of people were reflecting on what was important in their lives and it right. just seemed to um, connect with that really. Another aspect of of the pandemic was that I had time to actually get all his old masters that were on tape transferred to digital. Wow. Which meant that I was able to listen, you know, to all of the old demos that he had, you know, the studio work. You know, I found a lot of tracks that weren't used on, you know, different albums, but that he had sort of penciled in, you know, as possibly going here or possibly going there which is how he worked, you know, he'd have songs in various stages and then for whatever he was going through, those were the songs that would make it onto that particular record. So he'd earmark these melodies for the for his latest album, but, you know, they all had their origins um, decades before. So when I was deciding, you know, what direction to take the sound of the record in, 
um, it was really interesting because often when I found the very early demos, it, they actually did seem to echo his original intention for the song. So somehow that seemed to be what I was connecting with, you know, perhaps because I'd heard them, you know, as a child or they were there somehow subconsciously, you know, in me in that form. But um, that was quite you know reassuring to know that we kind of stayed on track with how they'd originally been intended going through all those demos and doing the tape transfers it's almost like you were studying and gathering your mental notes for the way to move forward to do the record i mean that must have been incredibly helpful yeah it was and it, it kind of felt like i was getting the green light you know from him yeah, that i was right. i was on the right track so. staying true to his vision yeah no absolutely being true to his vision and also true to what you know, I, I had heard growing up, which was it, they, the demos were much simpler. You know, it was just him and either the guitar or piano or yeah. sometimes it'd be a bass line. But yeah, they were much simpler. So that was really interesting. Was your dad more of an inspirational songwriter where things would come to him and he would have to race to capture them before the idea evaporated? Or was he a more methodical? Um, yeah, he was. I think it was pretty much you know, consistently putting the work in every day, but it wasn't like just sort of, um, you know, like work. What what he would do is he would get up every single day and the first thing he would do before he even got dressed would just be to sit at the piano wow. um, or, or pick up the guitar. And because he never, um, you know, read or, or wrote music, he had to keep everything in his, in his memory. Um, and the way he kept it alive was he'd play everything every day. So he would never play, obviously, the stuff that he'd already released, but all the new stuff. He would go through it. And as he was going through each, you know, maybe it was just a phrase or a chorus, you know, he'd think of another little piece and or maybe he'd piece that bit with that bit and then the song would start to be formed. But yeah, the, the process was always, um, he liked to work somewhere peaceful and it was always the first thing that he did. Yeah. Wow. Um, and it was pretty much all he did, actually, all day. <laughs> wow. Was that. Um, yeah, and he, he had a very strong work ethic, and he, you know, he worked hard to be become the best songwriter that he could. Yeah. You know, he always used to say that his advice to young songwriters and musicians starting out was, you know, try to become a better songwriter more than a bigger celebrity. You know, put your effort and time into that, and that's what will pay off eventually. Yeah. Well, certainly. I mean. There's these songs that your dad has created will go on to inspire future songwriters for generations. Certainly Baker Street and Stuck in the Middle with You and Right Down the Line. These are iconic songs. Absolutely. I mean, you know, he was fortunate in that he he was extraordinarily good at, at songwriting. Yeah, I had great insight into into life and living and what why we're here and what we're doing here. And I think he really wanted to get that across because whatever he went through in his life, you know, fundamentally, he really connected and believed that life is um, ultimately meaningful. Whatever it throws at you, it's, it's ultimately, um, yeah, deeply meaningful. And um, he had a great, you know, spiritual side to his life where uh, he wasn't religious, I would say, but, you know, spiritual. And yeah. uh, that's what he wanted to really express in his music. Well, thank you very much for your time today. And we appreciate so much all the work you did to make Rest in Blue come to fruition. And of course, it ends with a re-recording of the Steelers Wheel classic, Stuck in the Middle with You. What can you tell us about this last track? 
Um, yeah, so he had, um, throughout his life, re- returned to some of his earlier work in Steeler's Wheel and re-recorded some of the songs then because they were great songs, but he always wanted to bring, you know, a better production and a more mature vocal to them. And, and Stuck in the Middle, the vocal was recorded in the late 90s and um, we put a new arrangement on it. It has more of a sort of country feel and it's really nice to hear that song um, being sung from his perspective as an older as an older man, right? You know, with yeah. That, rather than a young a young voice, I'm really glad we were able to include that actually on the record. Martha, thank you so much for your time today. Really appreciate it. Thank you very much. I, I'm really grateful that this record is able to connect with an American audience. I think it will be enjoyed by a lot of his fans there because they have. He's never toured in America, so it's it's always been. I've always felt sad that you know more of who he was and who he is could you know couldn't be shared with an American public. So I'm really glad that this record is going to get an airing over there. Well, Thanks very much to Martha Rafferty for the great insight on the creation of Rest in Blue, which is available now wherever you consume music. To learn more about Jerry Rafferty, make sure to visit jerryrafferty.com, where there's a great discography of all of Jerry's work, both as a solo artist and with his groups Steeler's Wheel and The Humble Bums. Take care out there, and we'll see you next time right here on the Rhino Podcast. Thanks very much for tuning in. Don't forget to listen and subscribe on iTunes so you don't miss the next Rhino podcast. Producer for Rhino Entertainment, John Hughes. Produced for Rhino Entertainment by Rich Mayhem Promotions. All rights reserved.